On this prequel episode, we reveal the Cat in the Hat poll results, learn about racism in Middle-earth, and preview The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. Oh, welcome back to this film's lit, the podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. Sorry that this is a day late. We had some family in town, and we're a bit busy getting ready to go out of town. A lot of things all going on at once, so... And we had to delay this a little bit, but uh, it's longer. It's going to be a long prequel episode, relative yeah. well, longer yeah. than normal prequel episode. I got a lot of notes when I was doing my <laughs> learning things segment. I got a little carried away, but I think we'll get through it pretty quick. And I think maybe it'll be interesting. We'll see. But first, let's talk about the cat in the hat. The poll results, Katie. How did those go? Um. So the poll results were largely as I expected. Mm-hmm. Um. We didn't have too much of a turnout on Facebook. Uh, the book got 100% of the vote nice. there. We didn't get any kind of commentary or anything. Okay. Um, things got a little more interesting on Twitter, uh, where the book got about 79% That's of the vote, and the movie got 21%. How many votes did we have? Vote. I don't know. I would Ballpark? have to look at it. Like over around, 20? T- around 20, okay. like somewhere in that okay. range. Um. I'm using percentages because it sounds better. No, I know, but I just in ge- like with that as like f- kind of just a rough number of total votes. I was just wondering, but yeah, I around twenty in that in that vicinity. Cool. Yeah. Um, and we did get some commentary. Um, April Atmansky, mm-hmm. a friend of the show from uh, No Such Thing as a Bad Movie yes. podcast. Um commented um early in the polling there's no way the movie is getting any votes and i think at that time it had no votes yeah and at that time it had no votes only the book had votes um she was wrong (laughs) yeah 20 percent wrong (laughs) um and then uh another twitter user um i should have played alda roshka alda roshka um Asked, why are you even putting it to a vote? Uh, as if that literal crime against everything good and pure could ever win. Maybe they're talking about the book. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. You never know, I guess. Yeah. Scarface chimed in as well. Oh, uh, Scarface chimed in. Um, as much as I praise the movie for its original take on the book, um, the book shall always have a place in my heart. There you go. Um, so I guess that means he voted for the book. I guess that means book. he voted for the book? <laughs> sounds like it in general. Yeah, sounds like it. Um, and then we had uh, some comments um, from Nikki Needs an Adult podcast. Um, and she said, that movie is great. You're all crazy. And I responded with a no. <laughs> <laughs> um, and she said she thought it was funny. So oh, I, I'm, I, I guess there you go. I guess some people somewhere have to think that it's funny yeah i mean i and there were moments but it was they were few and far between yeah. for me but yeah. you know humor is subjective and if you really like mike myers a shtick then then this is it right up your be, alley yeah, i can see yeah. you being into it so fair enough but uh overwhelmingly the book was the winner as we sort of expected that's it for our twitter and facebook or for our social media poll results for the cat in the hat let's move on to our learning things segment which is a somewhat mini version of your fave is problematic race and realism realism race and racism in middle earth no matter what anybody tells you words and ideas can change the world 
I did a little bit of a dive today. We had discussed it numerous times throughout the course of the uh, episodes on Lord of the Rings f- for the first two. Yeah, we've touched on we've it. We've touched on there. it here and there. And actually, some of the things I brought up in those episodes, I, I found discussed in other places. Most of the notes that I'm pulling here and most of the... So I'm, I'm paraphrasing elements and pulling sort of the, the framework from a, a website called TolkienGateway.com. They have a section on race and racism in... Tolkien's works, specifically mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings, Cimmerillion, all of the sort of Middle Earth mm-hmm. uh, canon. Um, and so there's a lot to kind of discuss, and we're going to go through it and uh, and kind of see. They have this person, uh, or people, I don't know how this was written, if it was like a sort of a collective, like, Wikipedia-style mm-hmm. editing thing, or if somebody wrote this art, this sort of whole compendium on it up. But it's presented in sort of like different sections uh, about different uh, arguments that racism... For racism in the uh, of elements and, and evidence of racism in the works versus uh, sort of arguments against it, and we're gonna we're gonna kind of go through all of it. But let's start with a little bit of a primer here. At first, since the very first publishing of Lord of the Rings, fans and critics alike have been discussing and debating that the way Tolkien handles race and racial imagery in Middle Earth. In the J.R. Tolkien Encyclopedia, uh, author Christine Chisholm distinguishes the accusations of racism into three categories in relation to Tolkien's work. One, intentional racism, that mm-hmm. he was intentionally just a racist and putting racist stuff into his book. <laughs> Two, uh, his he had an unconscious Eurocentric bias, which sure, yeah, probably, spoilers where I think I'm going to kind of land on the, mm-hmm. the argument here when we get to the end. and Or three, uh, an evolution from his latent racism in, Tur- in Tolkien's early work to a conscious rejection of racist tendencies in his later work. And this is sort of a... Number two combined with a sort of rosier, like, but he got better mm-hmm. type of thing. So, uh, well, it's kind of we, so those are three of the categories that that kind of people come at it uh, in general, according to Christine Chisholm. We've mentioned before uh, that in the forward to the revised edition of Lord of the Rings, I brought this up in the prequel or in the uh, the uh, Fellowship of the Ring episode, mm-hmm. that Tolkien cautions against viewing his story as an allegory, claims to despise allegory himself. I mentioned it at the time, but I've always found this defense like completely unsatisfactory at best and dishonest at worst. And I can't read his intention. I don't know Tolkien's intention, but to me, it feels a little bit dishonest. I find it super hard to believe that Tolkien could truly, I mean, truly write that and believe that his deeply political story about ancient bloodlines, peaceful agrarian societies, warring demigods, and the great struggle between good and evil and light and dark is something avoid of allegorical implications. To me, that's kind of stunning to, like, make that argument. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just seems... It, It is, but at the same time, it doesn't surprise me coming from an academic... Sure. Okay. To me, it just... Like, it doesn't surprise me that he would say that. To me, that's what makes it feel dishonest. He seems smart enough to be like... And now he can argue this wasn't my intent. Mm -hmm. But to then insist that there are no allegorical... This isn't an allegorical thing. It's like, you you may not have meant it that way, man. But, like, read it? (laughs) (laughs) Like, it just seems strange to me. But, anyways... Uh, so let's get in and discuss some of the specific places that Tolkien's writing has some pretty problematic racial implications. And again, some of this we've touched on at times in this earlier episodes, but we're going to go a little bit more here in depth. Uh, we'll start with orcs. Orcs are the main opposing military force throughout the series. And who fights the orcs? 
the mostly white free people of Middle Earth. Uh, in the text, the Urukai, who are a, a subspecies or a, of orc, basically, yeah, um, are described as quote unquote black, and other orcs at time are described as black skinned and slant eyed. Is commonly used in descriptions of orcs, and in one of his letters that Tolkien wrote, which we have a lot of his letters that he sent to people about mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, Tolkien described orcs as squat, broad, flat-nosed, sallow-skinned, with wide mouths and slant eyes, in face-degraded and repulsive versions of the, to Europeans, least lovely Mongol types. Which is definitely uh, not the best thing to say. Now, you can do in this slightly, and the person in this article on, on the website kind of did in the sense that he does at least caveat, he says, and now it's still not, I'm not saying this makes it not problematic. Also, keep in mind, let's preface all of this, that this is taking place in the 40s and the 50s, yeah. 1940s and 50s, but still, I mean, not to excuse anything. But he does say uh, the repulsive versions to the to Europeans and somehow, in, which is still weird. Um and 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 then also this again I'm presenting what this person in the in the in this article commented on and that saying that the that the orcs are the degraded repulsive versions of mm-hmm. these it still feels because he says the least lovely mom which is it, it's still a weird it's still a, a, a incredibly racially and a gross tinged way to describe yeah. <laughs> the characters in your <laughs> the evil characters in your book but uh, yeah. Anyways, so that that's kind of orcs uh, in general. Uh, moving on, another topic that kind of and I've, we've touched on this a little bit is the whole theme of light versus dark. Mm-hmm. Some cri- critics argue that there's subtle inherent racism in the use of the light versus dark imagery throughout the books. In 2002, John Yacht in The Guardian wrote, "White men are good, dark men are bad, orcs are worst of all." Other critics, such as Tom Shippey and Michael D.C. Drought, disagree with such clear-cut generalizations of Tolkien's white and dark men into good and bad. Uh, kind of disagreeing with, mm-hmm. with John Yacht's opinion there. Uh, I have later, and we're going to kind of go back on some of these points and see what at least this, this person or people who wrote the, this entry, kind of their defenses of some of this stuff, and we're going to discuss it and see what we think of it. Uh, in terms of like mm-hmm. if we think that contextualizes it in a way that's less problematic or if it doesn't, that sort of thing. Tolkien Gateway goes on to say, but white is not associated only with good. And this is I want to talk about this. White is not associated only with good. Saruman the white has the white hand as his symbol. Similarly, black is not associated only associated with evil as Gondor uses a black standard bearing the white tree and the guards of the Citadel of Minas Tirith wore black chainmail. Do you have any thoughts on this defense? This is the first one in this little... I have a whole section of sort of pushback against the accusation, mm-hmm. but this is the first one that was like part of this section on light versus dark, and I really wanted to talk about it because I thought it was like poorly researched, if nothing else. Yeah. Um, I think the use of the, like, the white hand is maybe their strongest point that they're making here. But it's not a terribly strong point. Yeah. That's like one example up yeah. against many, many opposite examples. Yeah. Um, like, like the idea of like, oh, they wore black chain mail. Yeah. That seems 
unimportant. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting too that it's like they use a black standard with a white tree on it. Yeah, but the, the black part is, is the, the white, white tree. tree. The black standard is literally the background yeah. of so that the white tree yeah, is that's more just visible. Just so we can see the white tree better. <laughs> yeah, which I thought was interesting. Um, and then Saruman the White. I mean, they do refer to him as Saruman the White, like throughout. But this was my point. This was my big point that made us feel like, did you read the yeah, books? Person or writing on Tolkien Gateway? Because in Fellowship, we learn like almost immediately yes. that he rejects the white yes. label and he becomes Saruman of many colors. Yes. And I was like, because I commented on the time about how that that sort of I thought I did. I felt like that I no, commented you did. about that tying you into sort of did. the. Uh, uh, the, the, the implications of the light versus the dark and that he can't be and when he becomes evil he's no longer the white yeah. he is now the many colored which again yeah. it's almost like it's like the opposite point it, it supports the opposite of their argument and somehow whoever which made me question like the rest of this it all seemed from what I remembered everything else they quote and everything seemed pretty much on point um, but that I, I again I don't know who wrote that or where but it was included on this section on light versus dark and I was like I mean he did it. He did it. He did it. The white hand was his symbol, but uh, he was Saruman the many colored once he became yeah. evil. So, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was strange. Anyways, moving on. Evil men. Uh, the, we've talked about this one quite a bit uh, in previous episodes. Uh, the men who serve Sauron throughout the books are primarily primarily the Easterlings and the Southruns, mm-hmm. Southruns who are dark skinned people. Uh, they hail from the south and east, accordingly, of Middle Earth. Uh, which is kind of the rough equivalent in the world of Middle Earth to sort of your Africa or your Asian yeah. areas. Um, Easterlings are described as having a fairly dark complexion, swarthy, and being exceedingly cruel. The Southrons are described as black-skinned, cruel, and evil, and they ride uh, they ride Mumakil, which is clearly an allusion to the war elephants used in India, Asia, the Middle East, mm-hmm. Africa, many times throughout history. I, I'm sure they were also at times used by like. If I had to guess, like, uh, uh, like you're more like historically white cultures to some mm-hmm. extent. Like, I wouldn't, but I don't, I don't know that for sure. But traditionally, when we see uh, war elephants and that sort of thing, they definitely identify. We identify those with Asian or Eastern yeah. cultures and yes. that sort of thing. Uh, this is a counterpoint that is interesting that uh, we haven't got. I don't. We. I don't think we've, we're still currently reading Return of the King, and I haven't gotten to this point yet. But uh, the Wozes, uh, who are mentioned in Return of the King at some point, are primitive, small, and alien compared to the other peoples. Their chief, uh, Ganburi Gan, only wears a grass skirt. Uh, yet they are valuable allies in the Return of the King. Mm-hmm. Uh, they fight. I, I assume they fight in the battle, maybe at the end. Yeah, Again, we're I don't not there yet. That. Um, while Tolkien, no, they're not in a movie, right? At least, I not, not that I remember. Not, I, I've seen this movie a few, a fair number of times, and I do not recall anybody which is wearing a grass skirt in the movie. But while Tolkien does not mention their skin color, uh, they were considered monsters by the Rohirrim and hunt, who hunted them as animals. And this narrative apparently is explicitly sort of condemned in the in the narrative of the story. Okay. Um, however, in the first age, they were also counted as a Dane or nobleman and were allies of the elves. So they are sort of part of the old races that and again they're coded it sounds like we haven't gotten there yet they're sort of coded coded more tribal or native yeah, type sounds of like it or potentially african something you know whatever mm-hmm. uh a non-white uh race potentially i mean that is what like a grass skirt right would uh generally speaking would, yeah would yeah 
and again, they don't explicitly mention their skin color, but yeah. And uh, yeah. Um, there are also tales mentioned in other works that imply, and this I thought this was interesting, that some number of Southrons and Easterlings were in fact resisting Sauron in their own lands. Uh, those stories remain untold. And mm. they're not even mentioned in this main narrative, but there are some other, like, either in Cimmerillion or something, there's some mention or discussion of the blue wizards going to to the south or the east and, mm-hmm. and trying to start an insurrection. I don't know the exact details, but it's implied that there are factions of the Southrons or Easterlings that are not, um, because it's sort of in the story, it's that they're, they're sort of um, tricked and beguiled by Sauron into fighting for him. Okay. And, and and that there's factions that were not down to fight for Sauron. All right. Well, if it's not in the main story, again, it's it not in count. the main story, so it doesn't really matter because yeah. when you're just reading Lord of the Rings, the three or the six books or what have you, it's not you. You don't get that feeling. Um, racism in Middle Earth is another category here. Amongst the heroic, see primarily white mm-hmm. races of Middle Earth, racism is seen as a negative thing. Uh, this is pretty common, and we kind of discuss this a little bit but the distrust between elves and dwarves is clearly portrayed as a failing by both races uh, you know they they don't trust each other but it's because of lack of communication and they both wronged each other in ways in years past and mm-hmm. you know eons past that they not everybody most people don't even remember anymore they just sort of commonly distrust each other uh, and I mentioned during the uh, Fellowship of the Ring that, that there's the distrust uh, between the different groups of hobbits and how the Brelanders don't trust the yeah or the Buckland yeah. uh, hobbits don't trust the Shire hobbits and the Shire hobbits think that the Bre- or Buckland hobbits are weird and they both think each other are weird or queer. Um, and and it's a very clearly remarked. Uh, Tolkien's very clearly making the point that this the fact that they see each other as these different. Mm-hmm. And distrust each other is silly. That they're sort of bigoted against each other in a way is a silly thing. Yeah. Uh, but again, they're all just white hobbits, right? Yeah. So. They're all they're all coated white, which to me almost it makes it more like a a commentary on like nationality. I know. I, yeah, like, yeah. Why I did the British and the French hate each yeah. other? That's silly. Uh, yeah. There are some hobbits mentioned at one point that are, and I can't remember who. There's some hobbits that are are slightly darker skinned. But yeah. I think that you could argue that's maybe tended to be coded more of like an Italian. They're like a mm-hmm. swarthy or like I, I'm again, <laughs> I'm not a Tolkien scholar, but that's kind of what it read like to me because there was a discussion, uh, a discussion of some hobbits having like darker skin than others and some of them being fairer or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, again, they're all coded as white. So but again, amongst he does see that with the elves and the dwarves and all that, they're kind of. Racism is bad, quote unquote. Yeah, but I think it's a, a simple reading of it. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Uh, the dwarves as Jews is the next category. <laughs> uh, Tolkien himself compared dwarves to Jews. The dwarves, of course, are quite obvious. This is a quote from his letter. Are quite obviously, <laughs> wouldn't you say that? In many ways, they remind you of the Jews. Their words are Semitic, obviously constructed to be Semitic. And his argument, or, and what he's kind of alluding to there is the way he constructed the language for the dwarves, mm-hmm. it, it, obviously, specifically, but also uh, the fact that they're uh, like a, uh, a misplaced, because they, they were the they were this powerful group that mm-hmm. lived under the in the mountains, but their home has been... Their uh, home has been taken, taken from, from them, so and now they're wanderers, okay. and, and, and sort of right. implying more of a, uh, a, a narrative similarity than mm-hmm. maybe... It, but we'll go on from there. Um Throughout the books, Tolkien paints a mostly positive picture of the dwarves. Gimli, of course, is brave and honorable. And then obviously in The Hobbit, mm-hmm. all of the dwarves are, you know, some manner of brave and 
and honorable and they all have their little different quirks and that sort of thing. But and it is stated in one of the appendices to the Lord of the Rings that few dwarves ever served the enemy willingly, contrary to the tales of men. The men apparently lied about them and said that they were working for Sauron, but apparently most of them weren't. Um, Sounds like something men would say. And elsewhere, Tolkien uh, made explicit positive statements about the Jewish people. I don't have any of the quotes in here, but if you want to go and look at the letters uh, and on Tolkien Gateway, you can see some different letters he sent. Uh, one of them that I thought was rather interesting was the ger- a German publisher uh, during the 40s or 50s came to him about doing a German translation. Mm-hmm. And uh, they asked him if he was Aryan, and he sent back a very scathing letter about uh, how, you know... Uh, about how he doesn't buy into that race baiting nonsense or something mm-hmm. like that, and and uh, essentially saying like if if only I was Jewish, it's a little silly, but like you know he calls him out yeah. and it's like fuck you, <laughs> go Tolkien, yeah. Uh, but on a counterpoint, one of the weaknesses of the dwarves was their greed for gold and their other riches which is amplified by the seven rings. Some see this as a connection between this and the stereotype of the Jewish uh, user. Is that how you pronounce that? Money lender, whatever. Yeah. I believe is what an user, user, user. I think so. Um, and it's also uh, possible to draw a connection between the uh, the dwarves and all. They are all bearded, mm-hmm. almost to a to a to a dwarf, uh, and the beards of sort of Orthodox Jews and that sort of thing. <laughs> so uh, it's an interesting. But again, he he in his writing and at least at, at throughout times he was seemed very much not anti-Semitic. It's just. Definitely. But again, I and, and we'll get to sort of what I think of everything that's going on here is that he's kind of like the 1940s version of J.K. Rowling, but like maybe less, slightly less progressive in terms of like, or at least attempting to, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Of like, not, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. This is a section in this article that's a basically in defense of Tolkien. And I want to briefly go through some of these and just discuss it because I thought it was kind of interesting. Uh, so the first point is that the symbolism of light, uh, light as good and dark as evil is a prehistoric dichotomy present in uh, many cultures, mm-hmm. uh, Western and otherwise. It's also part of Christianity. I'm uh, the light of the world. For, uh, whoever meets me will never walk in darkness, blah, blah, blah. Uh, variations such as the Manichaeist heresy and further the ancient religions of Persia, Zoroastrianism, basically saying that it's not like Tolkien invented yeah, this I idea think that's of a, light a versus dark. Valid point. He definitely didn't invent no. that. That's pulling from symbolism that goes yeah. back to before we had yeah. any kind of written story. To me, it's definitely one of those things where it, it, it. This is one of the points where I agree with that, and I think it's definitely one of those things you can go. I I don't necessarily fault. It would makes it would it makes perfect sense to use that symbolism in that time period. Exactly. And, and of course, he uses that symbolism. But that's one of those things that looking back now, uh, I, some of the other things that we'll talk about are less sort of excusable. Maybe I guess mm-hmm. what you know when we talk about the fact that like all of the evil people are brown, like yeah. is a little less excusable at that time period than just like the whole like imagery of light versus dark, which is such a culturally like. Right, that's an, an enormously and, culturally pervasive thing, um, and I, yeah, I don't know if I can fault him for pulling from that in the 1940s and 50s to write his. I think if high he were fantasy. if he were writing it now, it would yeah. probably be more interesting and more progressive to subvert that in some yeah. way, or more importantly, yeah, to subvert it. And I think the other thing you can do is to is to is to sort of uh, discuss the. The, f- the flaw in that dichotomy. Yes, the flaws yeah. in it. And then, yeah. Um, but, you know, 60, 70 right. years ago, were we even having that conversation? Right. Would he have even thought of it that way? I don't know. Yeah. 
Yes. Um, so another point. Uh, Tolkien was English and wanted to make a mythology for England. Therefore, he wrote The Lord of the Rings according to his people's point of view. He could not make his protagonist say Incan or Japanese. I don't know why they picked those two particular people. <laughs> um, again, these are this is not my writing. I, these are actually copy-pasted from the website because I wanted to discuss them. I'm not... This is not me writing any of this. Um, or even put the setting anywhere else uh, the, other than an alternative Northwestern Europe. Uh, because, again, he's trying to write... Their point is that he's trying to write in English mythology. Yeah, I and mean, that which, was one of his goals. Yeah, again, makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and again, it, it feels definitely informed by uh, sort of the history he was going for. Yeah. And, 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 and the history of the time is that uh, the the white people of... That area fought other people from other areas, and so he's like, well, I'll do that. <laughs> but, again, I think the thing that is the biggest point, if you want to argue about this, is that it's, it, it, if nothing else, it's an indictment of... the. It's very clear that Tolkien was not a, an, like a, 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 a super forward thinker. Mm-hmm. He was a man of his times, and that's a, a problem because the times were rough yeah. and problematic. But he doesn't particularly strike me as uh, super regressive or um, he clearly was not like some great forward thinking liberal bastion of progressism. You you know what I mean? In his writing, whereas there are other authors that you can see elements of exceeding the morals of their time. Yeah, Uh, I, I didn't think up any examples off the top of my head, but there are plenty of them who are discussing topics in ways that greatly sort of outstretch whatever their contemporaries are mm-hmm. writing about. And I don't think Tolkien was, in regards he, to, yeah. like, I, race I don't, Yeah, and, I don't think he was, like, super-duper progressive on that front. Yeah. But, I mean, we could maybe give him, like, the you're not as bad as you could have been yeah. award. We'll get to my end. <laughs> we'll get to my f- sort of my final take on this at the end here, and, and that's kind of where I come down. If you want to, again, if you want to kind of go through this, the uh, if you go search, search like Google Tolkien Gateway and then like race, racism or something like that, you'll find this page and you can see that I copy pasted parts of it and changed parts of it. And, you know, did, it's, uh, but this is all from that part. Uh, not only so this is another point they make, not only the East and South, uh, not only the East and South are associated with evil and neither were they always so in the first age, which, again, none of this is in Elements of the stories may be interspersed throughout these the three main books, mm-hmm. but in the first age, evil came. Uh, evil men came from the north, or evil came from the north, and Morgoth based himself in Angband. I don't know what that is. This is probably in the Cimmerillion. Probably. Also, men and elves first awoke in the east, so hmm. they came from the east, but they are, uh, you know, part of the noble heroic races now. Um, and Boromir is introduced as a man of the south without qualification, which he's from the south in the sense that. He's from Gondor. Again, this feels yeah. like I think they introduced he's inter- I assume they mean at the Council of Elrond. Mm-hmm. And that's because they're way farther north. Right. In relation to where they are. Yeah. He's definitely he's a from man the of the south. south because Minas Tirith is like way <laughs> further south than Rivendell. But yeah. I don't know. And, and, and Aragorn's from the north. So like, oh, OK, <laughs> sure. This is an interesting point. We talked about this in the War of the Ring. The human enemies, the Southrons and the whatchamacallits, the uh, Easterlings, mm-hmm. are not truly evil since they are described as deceived, enslaved, or exploited. Sam sees a dead warrior of Herod and wonders if he was truly evil or rather deceived or coerced to go to war. Sam doesn't wonder that. Did they read this Did book? they read Whoever... this book? That's Yeah, because that Faramir. was Faramir. This one, again, this feels like a sort of weird defense. 
Tolkien first describes the Herodrim in Lord of the Rings as tall, dark, and looking fierce and nasty, according to Gollum. With long black hair, painted faces, gold earrings, and ornaments. Later, a warrior of Herod falls at Sam's feet, uh, and this is the one where Faramir's there, Mm -hmm. has black plates of hair braided with gold. Notably, according to the person writing this, the author does not describe them as black, nor their hair as kinky, nor give them any other typical sub-Saharan African features. Mm, That's going to be a yikes for me. Yeah. That's a really weird defense to make. Yeah, these people very clearly coded. Yeah, very clearly coded, um, as like African, African or Middle Eastern, Middle Eastern some yes, in, somewhere in that general <laughs> yeah, area part of the world. of the world. But then we've got well, he didn't say their hair was kinky. Yeah. So, so are they really? Uh, are they actually African? And thus, that does he really? Yeah, think that's that, a, yeah, that's, like, a that's a weird, weird. That's a weird weak yeah. defense of Tolkien. Also, I thought this one was also weird. All the quote-unquote superior people, be they elves, Edain, or Dunedain, have no direct analogs in the peoples of the real world. If the Dunedain could be put somewhere, that. if the Dunedain could put be put somewhere, they would belong in Atlantis, since the Numenor was uh, since Numenor was Middle Earth's counterpart to Plato's Atlantis. So, in the in mythology of Middle Earth. Numenor was the the place, the the kingdom that mm. the Dunedain came from, and it's similar to Plato's Atlantis, where it's this ancient civilization of like Ubermensch people or whatever, mm-hmm. who then came in forth into the world, and Numenor was lost, and now they live amongst the rest of us normies. This also sort of uh, inspires uh, some of, from what I understand, uh, Nazism's ideas about uh, mm-hmm. uh, the, the Ubermensch being, they kind of bought into the whole Atlantis Plato thing. Um, and so it's, it's there's sort of a parallel there that's kind of weird. And, I, and this is another interesting point. The Rohirrim, who have been paralleled to blonde and fair Europeans, are considered inferior uh, to the Dunedain because they're middlemen in the view of the Dunedain. So... Sure. I mean, I mean, to me, that just makes the Dunedain sound like dicks. Yeah, <laughs> but okay. Um, and then finally, uh, they they argue that there are no truly perfect peoples in Tolkien's writings, save perhaps the Vanyar, which I think are some of the... Yeah, I think that's the... Well, there's Vyar, and there are Maiar. It's, it's part of the, the, the pantheon yeah, of Middle-earth, is. though, isn't it? We should have done a primer on that. Um <laughs> Given that Tolkien loved trees and nature in general, having his Numenorians wantonly cut down trees for ships is decidedly negative. The Noldor rebelled against the Valar and killed their fellow elves, implying that, like, the, look, these white people did bad things sometimes, so he's okay, saying sure. that everybody can do bad things. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, it, sure. <laughs> yeah, it feels, the whole thing of this defense feels at times nitpicky. There are ones that, that I think, you know, the light versus dark thing being like, sure, yeah. Yeah. But some of this feels a bit like, look, not at, but, but what about this little instance where one white person was bad once? So there, <laughs> like, okay, sure. That's your argument. We're looking at the greater, yeah, the sum of the imagery. And yeah. The- I mean, it's, it's all interesting to discuss. Yeah. It's interesting points. Um, do those points add up the way that maybe these people think they do? Yeah. I would say no. All right. Uh, Another interesting thing to note, moving on from this this website's defense, 
uh, fascists and far-right groups pushing racist ideologies tend to like Lord of the Rings uh, and, and high fantasy in general because mm. of the ideas of the pure and noble bloodlines and legions of handsome white men astride horses raging against the brown hordes on the field of battle tends to get their, get them going. So yeah. that's unfortunate. Yeah. But understandable because those you can, I, in the sense that there is, it's very clear, like when you see, if you're, if you're one of those people who are like, wait, I don't understand why you would say that Lord of the Rings is racist. And we're not, I'm not saying that the Lord of the Rings quote unquote is racist, but there are definitely problematic codings to the fact that we have all of these uh, traditionally European white heroes waging war mm-hmm. against all of the darker colored hordes yeah. that wish to to tear apart all that is good and whole in the world. Um, you can see why uh, racist ideologues would latch on to something like that and be like, yeah, yeah, it's just like Lord of the Rings. What's going on now? We're, we're just like the Rohirrim or whatever. And now... So many things could be said about that, 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 and you could you could probably argue against that pretty effectively in terms of the overall narrative that Tolkien's put sort of telling. Right. I think you can kind of argue against that, but you can see why there if you if you sort of selectively read things, or even just sort of blanket look at it without, um, without really delving into it and thinking hard about it, how you could pull out that. Yeah. That ideology out yeah. of it. I mean, I think, yeah, there's kind of a, a dual way to look at it. Like, on the one hand, um, a, a reading that somebody like that might get, like, that type of reading, I think, is fairly surface level. Right. And it doesn't examine, examine like, the deeper themes right. of the story. On the other hand, if Nazis are really into your book, there's a problem somewhere. Yeah. And this is this is lots, I think an interesting place to take this is to go back to our discussion of and I think it's an interesting sort of uh, parallel, but also with a difference is Fight Club. Mm-hmm. So in Fight Club, if you're very surface level reading and viewing of Fight Club, you uh, has a bunch of uh, fuckboy white dudes identifying with Tyler Durden and being yeah. like, "This is dope. This movie is got it all figured out." When in fact, the movie is in, is is in complete indictment of the toxic masculinity that they think it's celebrating. Mm-hmm. But you can watch the movie surface level and see it as a celebration of, of all of the terrible things that, yeah. that they want to identify with it. The difference here is that the, in, in fight club, the point is that that stuff's bad and stupid mm-hmm. in Lord of the Rings. There's not really explicitly the point that, that, the the Lord of the Rings is not a satire, yeah. Like it's not making a a. Uh, it's not making a well, well. According to according to Tolkien, it's not making any allegorical <laughs> um, arguments. But it's not making a, a. It's not pushing forward this narrative of all of the the white saviors, uh, not white saviors, but the, all of the heroic white people battling the brown people and going. But actually, that's not that's that we shouldn't do that. Yeah. No, we should in the narrative of Lord of the Rings, the brown people in the quote unquote brown people in the book are actively evil in his narrative. Yes. I mean, there, I, you, there's yes. not really any arguing it. They're there to burn the world down or whatever. Um, and so they should be fighting them. There's no like subversion there. Yeah. Whereas in, in Fight Club, it's when you watch it, it's like, OK, yeah, 
That's right. The opposite point is actually what with Fight Club. I think where we landed was like poor analysis skills. Yeah. Um. Lord of the Rings. I there's something askew in the actual narrative that makes that reading possible. Yeah. Yeah. That that's kind of my point. Yeah. Yeah. Finally, where I come down on this whole thing, I think I kind of come down on the side that Tolkien was probably less, quote unquote, racist than your average Western white guy in the 1940s and 50s, which is to say still pretty racist. Yeah. Uh, He seemed to oppose all forms of overt systemic racist policies Uh, in his letters uh, that I didn't put in here, but that you can go read. He he decries um, apartheid and anti-Semitism and and just sort of racism in general Mm -hmm. at different times throughout his life. Uh, Again, they're just words in a letter who knows what his personal actual but he's right in his writings. There's times where he he definitely was against sort of overt uh, obvious forms of systemic racism. Right. But you can't deny that the coding uh, of race in his primary work, The Lord of the Rings, is definitely problematic. Yeah, I think his racism was likely more maybe unconscious. Yeah, I think it again. Then, I, yeah, I think it fits into that one earlier of uh, that where we were discussing it. That it that it um, it's the category of unconscious Eurocentric bias. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's just an unwoke white guy. <laughs> like that's all it kind of was. Um, I, I I don't think it was intentionally vindictive. I don't think it was. It, at least it doesn't strike me that it was intentionally like mm-hmm. uh, the the. I don't, this doesn't strike me that it was intentional, but that doesn't excuse it and mean that it's yeah. like fine and that we should just be like, yeah, it's not racist. What are you right. talking about? Yeah, I think probably definitely like a lack of awareness on his part of like the harm that he could yeah. cause. Yeah. Um, but lack of intention to cause harm does not does not excuse harm done. Harm done. So no. I think the discussion of the imagery and the choices he made throughout the series is worth having, especially for current writers who are venturing into the fantasy genre. Absolutely. Look at what Tolkien did, good and bad. Learn from it and use it to write better, more inclusive fiction. Yeah. There you go. Book facts. Let's do it. (laughs) The eye of the enemy is moving. The end has come. Frodo moves closer to Mordor. How do we know Frodo is alive? What does your heart tell you? All right, I have a couple of book facts, uh, just a a little handful here. Um, This is the third and final volume of The Lord of the Rings. Um, It was originally published in 1955. Um, And The Return of the King is usually published with the six appendices that cover um, the wider history and languages yeah. of Middle-earth. Yes. Um, which includes the tale of Aragorn and Arwen, which I read and cried, by the way. <laughs> How long is it? It's, it's pretty short. Yeah. It's like a short story. Um, Tolkien felt that the chosen title of The Return of the King actually revealed too much of the story. I felt the same way. Um, he preferred The War of the Ring that as a title. That makes way more sense. Um, I couldn't find anything about why they ultimately went with The Return of the King. I'm going to assume that was a publisher yeah, probably. call. Um, if anybody knows, I would love to hear about that. Um, it was pretty well received, um, like all of them were. 
Um, in a review for the New York Times, uh, W.H. Auden praised uh, the return of the king, um, and he said that he found the whole novel yeah. um, to be a masterpiece of the genre, which is unsurprising considering that he kind of invented the genre. Yeah. Um, and uh, critic Anthony... Boucher. Boucher? Boucher. Boucher. I don't know. I think we've had him before. Yeah, it sounds a, familiar. A similar debate on how to pronounce the name. Yep. Um, but he also praised the volume as a masterly narration of tremendous and terrible climactic events. Um, although he also noted that Tolkien's prose, back to the prose, um, seems yeah, sometimes <laughs> to be protracted for its own sake. This guy's always had a little yeah. bit of a bone to pick with Tolkien. <laughs> Um, I also wanted to mention, I don't know, I don't think you have, do you have any notes about this? No. Um, the uh, Return of the King 1979 animated feature that was made for television by uh, Rankin Bass and Topcraft, um, which is often credited as the unofficial sequel to um, Ralph um, Bakshi. Bakshi's mm -hmm. 1978 animated film, The Lord of the Rings, which is based on the first two volumes of the book. I need to watch these sometimes. I've never watched them. I I, I know my dad really dug uh, Ralph Bakshi and his mm -hmm. art and that sort of stuff, and I always wanted to watch the the first one, and I just never have gotten around to it. Um, I think I have seen the animated The Lord of the Rings. I don't think I've seen the The Return of the King yeah. animated um, edition. Um, and this is, uh, my last note is about um, the Lord of the Rings novel in general, mm -hmm. not just Return of the King. Um, it is one of the most best-selling novels of all time. Um, it's sold a combined total of 150 million copies, probably more than that by now. By I don't now, know how yeah. old that statistic old is. Status, yeah. um, and translated into over 50 languages. So go. that's pretty cool. Yeah. That's it for the book facts for The Return of the King. Let's discuss Lord of the Rings, The Return of the Kings, the film. Whatever happens, stay with me. Mystic, we fight! All you have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to you. We shall see the Shire again. away your life's grace. I cannot protect you anymore. We cannot achieve victory through strength of arms. Not for ourselves. But we can give Frodo a chance. It's a 2003 film. The final in the trilogy, directed by Peter Jackson. It was written by Peter Jackson, his writing partner, Fran Walsh, and Philippa Boyens. To date, and again, this is like your book fact. I don't know exactly when this to date is. It has grossed over $1.12 billion, and it was the highest grossing film of 2003. It was nominated for 11 Oscars and famously won every single one of them. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, which is... For us, the most important one. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> best original score, best original song, best visual effects, best art direction, best costume design, best makeup, best sound mixing, and best film editing. It tied for the most Oscar wins ever with Titanic and Ben-Hur. Hmm. And it was the first fantasy film to win Best Picture. 
to me, that's a big thing. Yeah. Because genre art gets so shit on all the time. Yep. Like, to me, that's a really impressive, like, and, like, big thing. Yeah. Lord of the Rings trilogy as a whole became the most nominated film franchise in American uh, in Academy Award history with 30 nominations. It passed up the Godfather trilogy, which had 28 and the Star Wars franchise, which had 21. Hmm. It says film franchise. It should say trilogy because. Oh, it says most nominated film franchise. See, now I wonder at the time when this was because the newer star wars have been nominated for a bunch of like technical awards yeah. so they may be getting close to passing potentially i don't know yeah maybe i got i didn't look to see when that was i mean from, and they probably will if they keep making star wars movies. yeah 30 <laughs> well no because this this will be the last one in that franchise technically because they don't count mm-hmm. like the spin-off movies and stuff nine is going to be the last one in the, oh i see what in you're the saying okay saga so they don't count like uh, like, solo like solo wasn't movies. or whatever okay. yeah. all right, all right and rogue right. one wouldn't be in there either just like one through nine i gotcha would be, would be my assumption based on the way it's kind of described some production notes that I thought were interesting. Part of Helm's Deep was repurposed to become uh, Minas Tirith, including like the gate, which I actually recognized one of the inner parts of the gate. I was like, when I was looking at the trailer, I think for this movie, I was mm-hmm. like, that's from Helm's Deep. I that remember that. They just like painted yeah. it white <laughs> instead hey, of blue. Reuse, reduce, recycle, yeah. man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the white tree at the top of Minas Tirith was built from polystyrene uh, and it was influenced by ancient Lebanese olive trees. So hmm. if you want to know yeah, what kind of design they're going for, look up what an ancient Lebanese olive tree looks like. And that's kind of. I don't know. Um, like what? I don't know if they even could have like used a real tree, but I do find it a little ironic that they built a fake tree yeah. given like Tolkien's whole yeah. thing. His whole thing with trees. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so Shelob's design uh, was based on a tunnel web spider, and the head apparently was chosen by Peter Jackson's kids from one of many different sculpts that they were presented. Oh, so he gave his kids nightmares. Yeah. Uh, Peter Jackson is also an arachnophobe, which he uh, said it mm-hmm. definitely helped him try to make the. It definitely helped him in terms of like creating the scariest, most gross yeah. like sequence during that whole thing. I want to also say this, and I keep meaning to say this. A lot of these that I get, I, I kind of go back and forth between Wikipedia and the trivia section on IMDb. And now I've always used that, and I've always known that that may not be the perfect source for how accurate all of these are. So some of these things, take them with a grain of salt if they're not this next one necessarily, but just in general, mm-hmm. take some of these things with a grain of salt. They're more fun facts. They're probably true. But there's a chance that some of them might not be completely accurate. They yeah. may be apocryphal or whatever. Yeah. Apocryphal. Ap- no. Apocryphal. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> this one goes back to our discussion from earlier. The Herodrim were highly influenced by African culture until Philippa Boyens, who was one of the writers on the show or on the movie, uh, expressed concern over the possibility of offensiveness. Now. Mm. Oh, interesting. Okay, okay, but all right. wait where this goes. <laughs> So the Finnish characters instead bear influence from Kiribati in terms of weaving armor from bamboo and the Aztecs in the use of jewelry. And I was like, oh, great. It's not offensive if we just mishmash a bunch of different brown cultures oh, together. Oh, come on now. Brown people are all interchangeable. Yeah. It's not like, oh, we don't want them to look too much like any specific African tribe. So let's just like these brown people and these brown people. Now it's not offensive. That's like the most fucking liberal white nonsense that I've ever heard. <laughs> like, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Now it's fine. Uh, okay. 
Supposedly, Andy Serkis and Elijah Wood were each given prop rings, and this is one that could be apocryphal. Uh, were each given prop rings by Peter Jackson that were used in the movie of the One Ring, mm-hmm. and apparently, they both thought they had the only one. Now, that's probably <laughs> that part I mean, that's, is probably that is a, little a too, joke. Uh, life imitates yeah. art. Probably, and now I can see Peter Jackson. He seems like the kind of guy that would have that kind of sense of humor. Yeah. He might say that. I doubt it lasted more than a, a couple a day or something. I, you know it would what I be mean? Hard to maintain that yeah. kind of yeah. yeah. This also sounds exactly like one of those things that that uh, like Elijah Wood or Andy Serkis told on a late night show. Mm-hmm. That's like that kind of story. Not that yeah. it's not true. It just <laughs> um, I'm sure there's some grain of truth yeah, to it. Yeah, but yeah. The final day of filming on the trilogy actually happened, and I did not know this, assuming this is true. Again, happened over a month, which a lot of these with Lord of the Rings, I bet, are true because there's so much extensive behind-the-scenes documentaries and movie videos mm-hmm. on all of the extended edition DVDs that I'm sure that's where a lot of this comes from. But the final day of filming on the trilogy actually happened over a month after the movie was theatrically released and three weeks after the 2004 Academy Awards. Peter Jackson arranged to film one final shot of skulls on the floor in the tunnel of the paths of the dead, which was included in the extended edition of the DVD, which we'll have to watch for. Um, (laughs) And he thought it was funny to be doing filming on a movie that had already won the best picture Oscar. I believe that. So if we got to look for a shot of skulls on the floor in the tunnel of the paths of the dead. There it is. And be like, that was filmed months after (laughs) a month after the movie was done. And came out. <laughs> I gotta imagine the crew for that was like, why are we here? Yeah. Why are we doing this? Yeah. Billy Boyd's singing scene largely came about because co-writer Philippa Boyens went for a night out with at a karaoke bar with the younger male cast members. And she was very struck by the quality of his voice. Billy mm-hmm. Boyd, Boyd, Boyd plays Pippin mm-hmm. and in uh, his singing scene with Denethor. She remembers that in the book, apparently... Denethor asked Pippin to sing him a song when Faramir heads off to war. She resurrected the lyrics from the novel, and Boyd came up with a tune for it. Hmm. Nice. This this is interesting. Uh, there's a scene where Faramir is dragged back by his horse after he goes to try to take back Osgiliath and is seemingly killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's drugged back to Minas Tirith by his horse, and they had to like go through like a lot of... <laughs> pains to make sure that uh he didn't die yeah because that was actually the actor david winham who was doing the stunt and they were worried that the horse might just start sprinting with mm-hmm. him being drugged behind it because it's just kind of walking and pulling him and so they had a thing where they had a, a a release mechanism in his hand that if the horse started to run he could pull it and it would detach him from the horse so mm. that it didn't like drag and bounce him around and like beat him to death behind the horse sprinting around which i thought was interesting they didn't end up needing it though which is good the horse was welcome the horse was uh well behaved a good boy yes uh with the scene where frodo gets uh stingered by shelob elijah wood uh hid two alka seltzers in his under his tongue and when and then he chews him up in that moment and that's why it like and when he he gets stabbed like foams at the mouth and it comes out those were alka seltzers apparently Hmm. According to a magazine article, Peter Jackson hated the Army of the Dead. He thought it was too unbelievable. He kept it in the script purely for the book nerds because he didn't want to disappoint diehard fans of the book. I have to say, 
Um, that much like uh, we talked about in Fellowship, the the watcher on the water, yeah, the giant kraken yep. that just comes out. It feels like a movie. It thing. does. If if I just saw the movies and you asked me, what do you think the movies added that wasn't in the books? I'd be like, probably the ghost army. The ghost army that Aragorn summons from the yeah. mountain and it comes and just wipes everything out. Now I don't know how exactly it plays <laughs> out in the book. We haven't gotten there yet. But it is where I'm at already. They're talking. They've talked to him numerous times about, hey, you should. You, he, he just decided where I'm at in the book that he's going to go to Dunharrow yeah. and go through that pass. So, uh, yeah, I thought that was interesting. That uh, apparently that's in the book. Peter Jackson was like dumb. <laughs> the live action Rohan army. Uh, this is really funny. Was made up of several hundred New Zealander extras. Uh, they all responded to an open casting call for people who could ride a horse. Many of them were women who had to perform as male writers because the only woman in the Rohirrim assault is Eowyn. So yeah. they had a lot of women in that, that are extras they had to dress up. So it was kind of like there was a bunch of Eowyns out there. Yeah. Because that's... The- <laughs> she disguises herself yeah. as a man. Yeah. yeah. It's fair. This is fantastic, and I did not know this. I've known of Figwit. We're going to discuss Figwit. We have not discussed Figwit somehow. I know of Figwit. How have we not discussed Figwit to this point? So Brett McKenzie had a silent cameo as an elf in Lord of the Rings: The Fellowship of the Ring. He's in the the when they're that's walking down the path, mm-hmm. and they see the elves walking down the path to the Grey Havens or whatever. He's one of those elves. Um, and he was he was very attractive, and he was immediately noticed by female fans, and they dubbed him Figwit, which stands for Frodo. Frodo is great. Who is that? Question mark. Interrobang. <laughs> Who is that? Uh, and that's Figwit. His celebrity on the internet was such that director Peter Jackson, who has informally accepted the use of the name, brought <laughs> Brett McKenzie <laughs> back to be in Return of the King as Arwen's escort and actually gave him two scripted lines of dialogue. So he, apparently he's back in this movie. I didn't remember that. I didn't know yeah. about this when I was watching these movies a million times. I'd never stumbled across this on the internet or whatever. And so I found out about Figwit many years later. The thing that's really interesting to me is that Brett McKenzie is... Um, it's funny because he's uh, he has a cameo because he's a uh, a pretty successful uh, musician and actor himself and mm-hmm. comedian. Uh, he's half of uh, the Flight of the Concords music mm. group who had their own TV show in New Zealand, mm-hmm. uh, and they're like a comedy music duo, um, and they're pretty famous. They've had some pretty popular YouTube videos that have blown up years ago and that sort of thing. But he's half of them, and uh, yeah, I thought it was interesting that he's also Figwit. Finally, this movie is originally going to end with a voiceover epilogue by Galadriel, detailing the fate of the Fellowship after the events of the movie. They shot scenes uh, showing Gimli and Legolas kind of after the fact, Mm -hmm. but they ended up not using any of that in the finished version of the film, which I think was probably a good decision. I don't think we needed a a Breakfast Club clothes, where are they now (laughs) (laughs) type of, uh, you know, ending for Lord of the Rings. I think the... Sailing to the Grey Havens, or no, now I don't even know which one's the actual ending right. of the movie. I think it's Sam. Yeah, I think you're right. Sam I think it's going Sam with his family. With, yeah, with Rosie. With and Rosie the and the babies, I think is the Maybe. final moment. <laughs> I couldn't tell you. I think, I can't remember. <laughs> it's either that or it's when they sail to the Grey Havens, but I don't think it's the Grey Havens. No, I think it's Sam. I think it's Sam, because he is the hero of the story. Yeah. So, I think that is it. Anyways, that was it for the prequel episode. Sorry it was a day late, but we appreciate you staying with us uh, while we while we dealt with all the stuff we got going on. Yeah. We also should say 
Yeah, the reminder, main episode. the main episode, we are planning on putting that out a day late. Yes. On it, next Wednesday. And it may even be two days late. Probably not. It should be <laughs> out Wednesday, next Wednesday. So a week from uh, when you're listening to this, most of mm-hmm. you. But yeah, uh, it, 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 Wednesday, maybe Thursday. We're going out of town for four days. Uh, We've got a, a long drive there yeah. and a long drive back. So we're going to listen to the audiobook. And then we're going to watch the movie when we get back. Uh, and then we got to coordinate with your sister to set up yeah. and get the... Uh, so we could have our, we didn't ever settle on a title. She's not our muggle, but yeah. our our Middle Earth muggle. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so that there's a lot of stuff going on. So, but but it will be out next week. I can promise you that. Sometime next week, the Return of the King final episode will be out. Uh, so we would appreciate it if you would bear with us until we get that done. Until that time, guys, gals, non-binary, and everybody else, keep reading books, keep watching movies, and, and keep, keep being movies. awesome. <laughs>